Welcome to Voices of Aging, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we invite people working in a variety of different fields related to aging and hear their stories. Tune in. Either you're considering a career in aging, or want to learn more about aging fields, or simply want to listen to a stimulating conversation, you will find something you like. Find Voices of Aging on the iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, Voices of Aging listeners. This is your host, Madeline, and I am popping on here just to let you know that we have the February 2022 Lunch and Learn session available for this week's episode, and we hope that you enjoy. Yeah, so my name's Marissa, and I'm a second-year grad student in social work clinical mental health at the University of Minnesota. I'm also the events chair at Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group, so I am co-hosting this event with you all. Uh, first off, a huge thanks to our two speakers, Jay and Sue, for coming here today. We really appreciate your time and look forward to hearing about your work. The topic of our Lunch and Learn today is mental health practice, both policy and macro, more from Sue, as well as clinical practice with older adults from Jay. So our agenda is that each speaker will get to share their work, and then we're going to have some discussion and questions at the end. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce our first speaker, Sue Abderholden, the Executive Director of National Association of Mental Illness. Sue has devoted her career to changing laws and attitudes that affect people with disabilities and their families. Since the fall of 2001, she has served as the executive director for NAMI. She has also held leadership positions with ARC of Minnesota U.S., Senator Paul D. Wellstone, and Pacer Center. Sue has a BA in political science from McAllister College and a master's degree in public health administration from the University of Minnesota. She is a community faculty member for the U of M School of Social Work, teaching health and mental health policy and was actually one of my instructors a few semesters ago. So it's good to see you again. Uh, Sue has also received numerous awards for her advocacy, including the 2020 Esther Wattenberg Policy Award, being named one of the 100 most influential healthcare leaders in Minnesota physician, and the 2018 Rana and Ken Purdy Award to end discrimination from national NAMI. So we are very excited to have you here. And with that, I will pass it over to Sue. Thank you so much, Marissa. I appreciate it. I'm just going to pull up my slides here. So I just wanted to talk a, you know, a little bit today about kind of mental health and, and older adults. You know, and I think we know there's um, a lot of risk. Um, felt like it went too long, okay. Um, for older adults. And I'm just gonna say I'm also over 65, so I can also be included um, in that category. You know, so certainly there's um, grief. Um, someone might have lost their spouse or a good friend. You know, I certainly saw as my mother aged, you know, that her, her friends were dying before she was. And so you have, you have a lot of loss. 
Um, also, you know, sometimes people have to leave their home that they've lived in for 40 or 50 years and, you know, off into a much smaller space. Um, maybe they can't garden anymore. I mean, there's a lot of changes there. And then, of course, when you have health issues that can restrict your movement, we know movement's important for getting the endorphins going in your brain. Um, that can also put you at greater risk for depression or anxiety. And then we also know that things like illnesses that are life-threatening, um, we know like, for example, you know, men who end up having bypasses, heart bypasses also, you know, develop depression. Um, if you're experiencing pain or you have a chronic illness, again, that's a greater risk. Excuse me. Um, there's side effects of medications that can also, um, you know, bring down your energy level and things like that. Um, poverty with the high stress that comes with it. And we know that a lot of people rely solely on their social security income, which often isn't frankly enough um, to live on. Being in Minnesota, that lack of light, and especially the fact that you're not necessarily, especially if you're older and you're, um, you know, osteoporosis and things like that, you're not going to risk falling on the ice. And so you're really not getting outside. We also know that substance misuse is high among older adults. Um, you know, I certainly, you know, I have friends who have retired who are older than me, and there are a lot of jokes about, you know, well, it must be happy hour. It's four o'clock somewhere in the world. Um, and so we're seeing people drinking a lot more. And then you do have people with serious mental illnesses who age. And so kind of the um, additional medical conditions and things like that that can come onto it can make it really hard. So we always kind of think of our mental health system kind of like this, you know, with certainly the individual in the middle, but it's, you know, there's a whole lot of other things that come into play in terms of social services, transportation, you know, housing, um, you know, primary care, all of that comes into play as well. But we often don't think about it when we think about how can our mental health system really support people, including older adults. So we can do all the awareness raising in the world that we want, but honestly, we make it so difficult under our healthcare policies for older adults to actually access the care that they need. So Medicare is clearly one of the you know, larger payers uh, for healthcare for um, people over the age of 65 and first people with disabilities. Um, but you get one free depression screening and alcohol misuse screening per year, one. Um, and I think we all know that, you know, it's not like depression just occurs once every 12 months, right? But it can come in at different times. So one screening, although I think we, what we really see a lot of in primary care clinics right now is no matter the payer, they're doing a PHQ-9 depression screen anyway, but still they only pay for one. Now they do pay for some outpatient mental health services. So they will pay for therapy. They will pay for psych evals, uh, medication management, some types of opioid treatment. And if they think that there might be alcohol misuse, you can have four brief, brief, I'm gonna underline brief, face-to-face -face sessions in primary care. Um, they will pay for hospitalization, but I'll get to that limit. Uh, you know, it's, you can only have 190 days of inpatient psych uh, treatment covered under Medicare, and they do pay for typically partial hospitalization as well if it's provided by a hospital or say a community mental health center. Um, I think the biggest issue that we have under Medicare, well, there's lots of them, but one of them is um, they don't cover all types of mental health professionals. So Medicare doesn't cover licensed professional clinical counselors or a licensed marriage and family therapist. And the reason this is really important is that in greater Minnesota, we see far many more LPCCs and LMFTs than clinical social workers, than psychologists. So older adults in greater Minnesota are going to have even greater 
trouble accessing the care that they need. We also see more LPCCs and LMFTs in the BIPOC community. And so now we're also, you know, frankly doing um, our culturally specific populations a disservice because we're not allowing them to be able to access the people that are in their community. Medicare really doesn't cover residential services. So we have people in Minnesota in mental health, we have what we call ERTS facilities, intensive residential treatment services, 16 beds so that they can get Medicaid. Medicare doesn't cover that. And so we have people who are in the hospital, they need a lower level of care. And unless they also have Medicaid, they aren't able to access it. Um, telehealth is limited. So you can't, you can, you know, especially during COVID, you could see someone from telehealth if you already had a relationship with them. But what about people who are developing this for the first time? How are you supposed to be able to do this, especially during COVID? And Medicare until, until the pandemic wasn't really great around telehealth. And it's something that we certainly are looking at on the national level. Um, Part D of Medicare, of course, covers medications. And um, they're supposed to have these kind of six protected classes. But I can tell you nearly every year, this we have to continue to fight for this. Um, so what they want to do is kind of really restrict uh, the types of medications and the different variety of like, you know, antidepressants or antipsychotics that are available, which again makes it difficult because if you've ever taken any of these things, you know that one antidepressant isn't really like the other. One antipsychotic isn't like the other. People bo people's bodies respond differently, which is why it often takes, you know, a couple of years um, and tries to find the right medication. And so again, if we have really restrictive formularies, if we get rid of the six protected classes, um, that could be detrimental to people's mental health. Um, it used to be, so mental health parity technically does not cover Medicare. Um, and it used to be that un until the 2008 act, you actually paid a higher co-payment for mental health services. And so that made it even, you know, it's another barrier, right, to accessing mental health services. Um, while that has changed, um, and we've seen that actually more people were actually able to access, when they did the research, it was more actually about medications. Um, but we think that, you know, as uh, baby boomers get older and are more comfortable with therapy and things like that, we might see that also increase. But that, again, was a huge barrier to people. And um, despite the fact that we know that older adults um, are kind of the increasing in terms of their opioid use disorders, um, again, Medicare is typically not paying for some of those, especially community-based residential treatment that people might actually need. Now, Medicare Advantage, um, of course, is where you kind of get, you know, in a sense, kind of supplemental plans through private. Um, technically, they're supposed to follow mental health parity. But one of the things that I will say that has always been the problem about mental health parity is we don't have a good way to enforce it. So the main way that you enforce mental health parity is by an individual actually complaining to the Department of Commerce or to the U.S. Department of Labor. No one in the middle of trying to fight for services thinks I'll call the Department of Commerce or I'll call the Department of Labor, said no one ever, right? No one knows to even call that. And that's our enforcement mechanism. Now they're looking to change that, but that's our enforcement mechanism. And so, um, so we do have a problem um, still under Medicare Advantage. What they have seen over the last couple of years is that more plans are actually adding what they kind of call the supplemental benefits to actually include mental health care. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years to see if this actually increases. Um, there have been a lot of people pushing the Biden administration to expand 
uh, mental health parity to all Medicare plans, um, but we'll have to see what happens. Um, one thing we do know is that the number of people using Medicare Advantage plans, purchasing them, has really increased greatly over the last even um, couple of years. And so we might see that maybe there'll be more um, access to uh, mental health services through that. And I want to mention nursing homes in Minnesota, because this is something we've actually heard quite a bit. And this is really hurting. It's kind of hurting two different groups, but it's hurting a lot of people who have a serious mental illness who are aging and who actually need nursing home care, especially for their kind of their physical um, issues that come around. We have a lot of people with serious mental illnesses that have diabetes and have heart disease and COPD and things like that. Um, people with serious mental illnesses have high smoking rates, um, you know, so they, they tend to get some other chronic illnesses. Um, the Department of Human Services in Minnesota changed their pre-admission screening requirements. And so now it's much more difficult for someone to get in if you have a primary diagnosis of mental illness. Um, we've also actually seen that, I'm gonna be honest, in hospice care. So we've had people with mental illnesses that they show that they've ever been committed, even though they've done nothing in the last several years, they, they aren't accepted, they don't get to go in. And I think that this is really an issue because we need to make sure that people, just because you have a mental illness, and you're an older adult, you should still be able to access the level of care that you need. Um, and so that's a, a huge problem. Um, and you know, we'll have to work with the department to try to, to change that. The other thing I want to mention is waivered services. So, you know, we have several different kinds of Medicaid waivered services in Minnesota. We have ones for people with brain injuries. We have ones for people with developmental disabilities. We have one called CADI for people with other types of disabilities. And we have the elderly waiver. Most people with mental illnesses are, um, and people with other physical disabilities are on what's called the CADI waiver. And it has a, a pretty high amount that's associated with it so people can get the supports and care they need to be able to live in the community. The elderly waiver has a lower amount and does not cover all the services. So if you have a mental illness and you've been, you've been on the CADI waiver and now you have to move to the elderly waiver because you turned 65, you do not get the same level of care um, that you did before. And it is something that has been you know, proposed as a change to uh, the legislature for the last couple of years. But what we've really seen is that then people are stuck. So if they're at Anoka Metro Regional Treatment Center, they turn 65, right? They can't get them out. They can't get them the services that they need in the community. And so people are stuck. Um, the same is true at regular hospitals if someone's in an inpatient psychiatric unit. Um, they have a very difficult time moving back into the community because they can't use the CADI waiver. They have to use the elderly waiver and it does not provide um, enough funding for what they need. So I'm just going to kind of close out by saying, you know, access is difficult. So again, we can talk about you know, how to provide good clinical services to someone who's an older adult and is experiencing a mental illness. But if we can't get payment for it, in some ways, it doesn't matter. Um, and so it really, I think, has come time for Medicare, uh, frankly, to uh, embrace mental health parity, to make sure that we cover those in-home services, that we cover residential treatment um, that people need in order to kind of live out the final years of their life um, as healthy as possible. So thank you so much. And I assume we'll just take questions at the end. Thank you, Sue, for sharing that information and broadening our awareness of some of those systemic issues with healthcare services and barriers to access. 
Um, do we have any questions right off the bat for Sue with that presentation? I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I am a holder of Medicare Advantage. I'm 80. And um, I got a flyer in the mail from my insurance carrier. Um, and so I applied to get two uh, things um, through Medicare Advantage. However, in both instances, because I was on a group plan, I did not get those services. Is the same thing true, Susan, with mental health? Um, it shouldn't. It shouldn't necessarily be. Um, you know, some of the Medicare Advantage plans are providing kind of an additional mental health. They call it behavioral health, which is a word I don't like because they're not behaviors, but um, they're symptoms. Um, but um, my understanding, and again, I, I will go back and double check, is that it's up to the plan whether they offer it or not, of course, but it should be available to individuals and not just group. It looks like we have another question from Sue Pananen. Hi, you had mentioned that it can take a couple of years to figure out what medication works best for an individual. Um, is there any news or updates on the um, practice of doing some DNA testing to see um, more easily what medications would work better or worse for an individual based on their DNA? There is a lot more work being done in that area, as you know. Um, some insurance plans will cover the cost of that, some will not. We've certainly heard from NAMI members where it's really worked well and other people where it hasn't. Um, I would say there's still, um, among psychiatrists, I think differing opinions about it, um, but I think it is, you know, I'm certainly hopeful that that's something in the future that will really speed up this whole process. All right, so I'm thinking we can take one more question before we move on to our next guest speaker. It looks like Dr. Linda has a question. Yeah, hi, Sue. I don't think you probably remember me. Uh, we did a lot of uh, correspondence there where I worked out on the West Coast. Uh, I still, uh, I'm home now on the Leech Lake Reservation and faculty <laughs> at the university, uh, but I've appreciated your intense wisdom over the years and glad to finally catch back up with you. My, my comment is the fact that, you know, as a citizen of this country, well, actually a dual citizen uh, being an American Indian, but regardless, mm -hmm. I do not understand to this day why on earth Medicare has to be so full of what I call booby traps. I mean, it, it's just pitted against elders. And I really appreciate that elders uh, question uh, previously, because if you don't have some expert that has about three PhDs, you can't navigate through that. And then if you mess up, you get to pay a penalty. I mean, it, it's just catastrophic. And, and I just I, I just get beside myself whenever I think about it. I, I don't use my Medicare except Part A, which automatically I qualify for. But um, uh, the other thing is uh, I don't want to have to use my Medicare because uh, being a, a health provider for a lot of years, I'm quite aware of the services you get uh, with Medicare-like rate uh, reimbursement. And that's a really sad thing to say and really pathetic. And I did work with Senator Wellstone um, before he was killed on a parity act, a true parity act. And that never got finished. We had it about 500 pages and, and I'm just, I don't even have a copy of that anymore. But the uh, Senator Domensky and Wellstone Act 
has a parody clause in it, but it's if if you read it carefully, it's mute because uh, uh, insurance companies do not have to offer uh, 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 what we call in Indian country behavioral services if their costs increase by more than one two percent the first year, one percent uh, in the third year. So it's like you know, that was a colossal waste of everybody's time. So sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but to the students uh, that are on today. Roll up your sleeves. We need to fight this. So thank you. Well, Dr. Fazali, do remember you and would be great to catch up again. Um, one thing that we have seen though in terms of the Parity Act, which is true, they don't, they're not required under mental health parity, parity to even cover mental health and substance use disorder services. It's just if they do cover it, then they have to cover it in the same way. Um, I would say most employers now cover it because they actually, especially frankly, during the pandemic, I have never seen employers more concerned about their employees' mental health. And so they're actually, um, what we've seen, at least in Minnesota, they're actually pushing the envelope in terms of private insurance um, you know, through employers, actually covering more of some of the Medicaid, typically Medicaid covered services um, than we've ever seen before. Um, so I think that's good. I think the, the biggest problem, I mean, we do find with, you know, the out-of-pocket limits and the um, limits on, you know, types of, or, you know, number of visits and things like that, they, they comply with that now. What they don't comply with is the non-quantitative treatment section of the law, where you kind of have to provide like services. So they aren't covering ERTS facilities unless they're really pushed and frankly sued. In Minnesota right now, they're not covering psychiatric residential treatment facilities for children. Um, so there's still a lot that needs to be done in that area. Um, but yeah, our, we, the dream has not been realized. Absolutely. And, and, and I would, uh, and I'm staying employed as long as I can. So I don't have to figure out the next part of that. Exactly. But the thing that, that really is insulting too, is I hate to see elders have to do a spin down to qualify for medical assistance. And yes. then there's a right of recovery after that. Now, American Indians have a little bit of protection for cultural regalia and things, but I mean, what's wrong? I mean, why should El I mean, it's just insulting. I could never ask my staff uh, before we had that clause uh, in the Indian Healthcare Improvement Act to sign them up because I just don't want the elders to have to give up everything. Yeah, absolutely. Good to connect again. Thank you. Good seeing you. Well, we got some wonderful questions. Thank you for that. We'll have time for more discussion at the end. I'll go ahead and introduce our second speaker, Jay Capecci Nguyen. They, them, is a mental health provider in the Geriatric Services Division of the Associated Clinic of Psychology in Minneapolis. This role includes providing direct psychotherapy services to residents of senior living facilities, as well as working with the facility staff and client family members to provide caregiver support and develop environmental interventions. Jay's clinical practice often includes examining internalized value systems, such as ageism and ableism, exploring the roles of cultures and institutions, and increasing client agency. Jay has also worked as a community organizer in Washington, D.C. and Albuquerque. Uh, other professional interests include LGBTQIA issues and end-of-life care. Jay has a bachelor's degree in anthropology from Georgetown University and a master's of social work degree from the University of Minnesota. In their spare time, Jay enjoys gardening, playing video games, and caring for their three pet chickens. So thank you very much for being here. Very excited to hear about your work. And with that, I'll pass it over to you. Thank you. 
Um, just a, a quick caveat before I jump into it. Uh, I am on site today. Um, internet in nursing homes is uh, pretty notoriously bad, um, kind of a, a general institutional issue. Um, so I do apologize if I cut out at all or if, or if um, I get interrupted. Um, I'm in a conference room right now. Um, so yeah, um, as, as mentioned, uh, my, my role is, is really twofold. Uh, obviously, the, the, the main piece uh, is, is meeting uh, with, with individuals who, who live in nursing homes, assisted living facilities, um, and providing psychotherapy services to them. Um, but what I really appreciate about my role, you know, if, if I was working in a, in a standard clinic, that would, you know, probably be the end of it. Um, but in this sort of setting, um, it's, it's a little bit unique because, you know, I'm, I'm able to see people in their own environments. So I'm able to, um, you know, get a lot of, uh, corroborating information, um, you know, with their permission, uh, working with the staff to help develop interventions, uh, do problem solving, um, you know, really just figure out, you know, who, who are the important players in, in the situation, um, and, and how can they help to, to, you know, improve it. Um, yeah, so, so generally I just have some, uh, some general themes that I've seen, uh, in my work. Um, I've, I've worked, um, directly for nursing homes in the past. Um, so, so doing things like discharge planning, um, you know, evaluations, all those sorts of things. Um, and now I'm, I'm contracted to go into nursing homes to provide mental health services. Um, one thing that I think is, um, Kind of interesting just to think about in general and I'm, I'm sure you all have, have had many of these conversations in this group before um, but I think I think a lot of us uh, don't necessarily think about what normal aging looks like or what it means um, I think there's definitely a lot of ideas that um, disability is a given as we age or mental illness um, and even institutionalization um, when really you know the rates of people living in nursing homes are very, very slim, you know, less than 5%, I believe. Um, and even, even things like, you know, functional disabilities are, are still, I think, around 25%. So, you know, certainly, certainly not all. Um, and, and that's not to downplay, um, as, as you mentioned, that, that there are obviously risk factors. Um, but, you know, I, I think some people, even as they're experiencing aging, um, you know, have, have the internal logic of, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm feeling terrible, but that's just what happens when you get old. Um, and because, because they normalize it so much, they don't necessarily seek help. And while it might be normal, it's not necessarily something that's not, not treatable. Um, yeah, I think another, another interesting piece of my work, um, and obviously because I'm in nursing homes, I'm working with people who are, you know, technically institutionalized, um, but even just working with, a, with the, the general older population is that there's an increased um, interaction with systems, you know, people, people may be in the hospital more frequently, um, or, you know, seeing doctors more frequently. Um, and um, obviously, all of those sorts of interactions, um, you know, have, have a certain amount of of power dynamics to them and and risk, um, you know, people really, you know, putting themselves, you know, sometimes literally under the knife, um, but definitely under the magnifying glass, um, and making themselves vulnerable. Um, so I I appreciate being able to to work in a system 
um, you know, where, where a big part of my role is advocacy, um, you know, really just trying to figure out where people are at their own understanding of, you know, what's what's happening with their health, uh, what's happening with with their mental health, with their their environment, um, and and really working as hard as possible to to increase their their agency and and you know their their role that they're playing. Um, I think I think one of those one of those themes that's obviously come up really recently is that um, COVID has really severely impacted a lot of our systems um, that many seniors interact with. Um, obviously, hospitals and nursing homes, um, and and it'll be. Uh, Interesting to say the least uh, to see how uh, you know kind of the the downstream effects um, that COVID has has played not not only directly but you know with with delays in care and, and things of that nature. Um, obviously, everyone's everyone's heard of and probably experienced the the staffing issues um, in healthcare settings, um, but that's certainly another stressor for for people you know who who are in these systems. You know, someone who's living in a nursing home can't necessarily just, you know, decide to go home um, because who's going to, you know, help provide them with the care they need, who's going to pay for that, uh, how long is that going to take, um, you know, so, so the people who, who have been in these systems and, and have survived this long, you know, through COVID in these systems, um, uh, usually not having the best time of their lives. Um, uh, as as mentioned before, you know I think I think you know working working with with an older population, um, one of the things certainly to be to be mindful about um, is is being comfortable with talking about death and dying and grief. Um, you know, again, I think I think some people have this idea that as you get older, death you know just becomes normal, and you you know sort of just I don't know are suddenly accepting of it, or you know. Don't even necessarily grieve for other people's deaths um, because you're, I guess, you know, anticipating them. Um, but obviously, we're all going to die someday, um, and that doesn't mean that we all just magically are accepting of that, right? Um, for some people, that doesn't change, you know, between the ages of of zero and eighty, um, and for some people, you know, it's it's kind of an up and down. Um, another another kind of interesting clinical piece um, working with this population. Um, it's kind of kind of two related pieces, um, but working with with uh, clients who are experiencing psychosis symptoms, um, so like hallucination, hallucinations or delusions, um, seeing things uh, that might not be present or, or you know, having having really uh, strong ideas about things in their environment that aren't necessarily true. Um, the the first type of thing that we typically look at in those sorts of situations um, is is assessing for delirium, um, which is an acute change, an acute mental change. Um, so often involves things like confusion, hallucinations, delusions, um, and it's usually attributable to some sort of you know medical issue that's happening. Um, so so the the really common example is if someone has a, a urinary tract infection, um, they can very easily you know, exhibit some of those symptoms. Um, and I think, I think for a lot of people who don't know that, it can be very scary. Um, obviously, for people who do know that, it can also be very scary. 
Um, but oftentimes in those sorts of situations, um, you know, if you treat the underlying medical condition, uh, the delirium, delirium by definition is temporary. Um, so, so as you treat the, the underlying condition, it usually resolves itself, um, but obviously sometimes takes longer than others. Um, the kind of second piece on that um, dealing with, with older populations is that, um, is that many antipsychotics uh, have been shown to have uh, negative impacts uh, for, for older adults, um, and particularly those uh, who, who, have, uh, who have dementia diagnoses. Um, you know, in, including things like like stroke and death. Um, there have been some really interesting, um, you know, controlled studies um, to see you know what what the effects are, and they they have found increased risk of death um, with with older adults who who are taking antipsychotics. Um, obviously, the the one of the big takeaways, and especially from a from a regulation perspective, is that they they don't want people unnecessarily on antipsychotics, which you know I think generally is true. You know we don't want to just you know load people up on on meds that they don't need. But obviously the the other part of that conversation is you know what happens to someone who's been on those types of medication their whole lives and you know doesn't want to go off of it, um, and 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 how do you you know, have that balance. And obviously that's not something I'm pretending to have the solution to right now, um, but certainly something to be aware of um, if, if and when you do, you know, work with work in, in this type of setting. Um, you know, as, as mentioned, um, you know, some, something that, that can be, um, can provide some, some challenges, but definitely some, some benefits too is um, obviously uh, aging and health um, are both cumulative factors. Um, so as you, as you get older, you you're you know you're you're gathering your life experiences, you know your preferences, you know all those sorts of things. And same with your health. You know if if you have diabetes, you know you're not suddenly cured of it when you turn eighty or something like that. You know you're not going to graduate um, from 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 many of you know or from some illnesses. For, from some some certainly you can be cured. Um, and, you know, that, that can certainly present some issues, you know, as people are, are you know, kind of experiencing compounding issues. Um, but one of the things that I really appreciate about working with, with this population is that, you know, obviously people, people don't make it to, to 70 or 80 or 90 without any skills whatsoever, right? Uh, if, if you survive that long, you've, you've survived somehow. Um, whether it's through through a, a strong support system or you know your own positive coping strategies, you know all those sorts of things. So so typically in my work with people, that's that's one of the first things we explore is you know well how have you made it this far? Um, and obviously the uh, part of the issue and why I'm seeing someone is usually you know that that something's off with that right? Maybe maybe they've had a spouse supporting them for a long time who who suddenly died, um, or maybe you know, their, maybe their family moved away or maybe they, you know, have had a coping skill that worked and suddenly it's no longer working in a new environment. Um, so, but, you know, having, having those, those strengths and those experiences is certainly something that I, I really appreciate being able to, to draw upon. Um, that being said, I think, you know, especially working in a medical setting, um, you know, there's, there's certainly um, some some issues related to comorbidities to be aware of, you know, like, like Sue mentioned with, with heart attacks, um, 
often leading to, to depression symptoms. Um, you know, often people who experience strokes uh, have the same sorts of issues um, or uh, thinking of, of uh, psychosis symptoms related to Parkinson's. Um, so, you know, there, there's certainly um, instances where, where someone does develop um, mental health, you know, symptoms later in life uh, related to a medical condition, um, you know, that, that, that I work through. Um, that being said, uh, you know, as, as, as Sue mentioned, I, you know, in, in, in that great intro, you know, so, some of the people I, I work with, you know, have had, you know, mental health diagnoses and, and treatment for their whole lives. And, you know, they've seen a therapist, you know, once a week for their whole lives and they keep seeing me uh, first, you know, I've, I've also worked with some people who have never been to a hospital before, you know, never seen a, a therapist before. Um, and I get to be the, the lucky first one uh, to sit down with them. Um, but hopefully, hopefully part of my role too is, you know, removing some of those barriers to, to access at least. Um, it's also really interesting to think about um, some, some cohort and historical perspectives. Um, you know, I'm obviously just thinking, you know, in terms of someone's life history and what they might have experienced. Uh, you know, I've worked with Holocaust survivors before. Um, you know, thinking about, about, you know, the last 90 years of history and everything that's happened. Um, I had a client this morning who, who told me about when she got indoor plumbing, you know, just <laughs> things, things like that, that I think, you know, we, we take for granted that, that people have, you know, had to deal with in their lives. Um, but also specifically in terms of mental health treatment, you know, I, I mentioned antipsychotic drugs, you know, it's, it's only been in the last 30 years uh, that, that we, that we, you know, have, have been able to prescribe people uh, atypical antipsychotic drugs. And so people who are on, who are on earlier antipsychotic medications, uh, some of them had really, really bad neurological side effects from that. Um, I've, I've worked with people who have spent many years uh, in, in, you know, mental health facilities, you know, back when those were much more common. Um, you know, mental health or, you know, who have, who have undergone years and years and years of uh, electroconvulsive therapy, um, things that, that maybe are, are a little less common today. Um, so even thinking of just the history of mental health treatment as it's, you know, developed in these people's lifetimes um, and their experiences with that um, certainly lets you appreciate more, you know, when, when people are less willing to see me, you know, I, I understand, you know, why, why that might be given, given their life experiences. Um, I, th I think the last part of that that I'll mention um, is, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, that I think about a lot is just kind of who, who we let become old, um, just kind of on a, on a structural and, and cultural level. Um, you know, I, I actually really got interested in doing this work um, when I was working at uh, what was then the Minnesota AIDS Project, um, because I didn't realize before starting that the average age of someone living with HIV is 50. Um, I expected to be working with a bunch of teenagers as I had for most of my life already. Um, and many of the people I was working with were 60, 70, 80. Um, but it really made me reflect on, you know, all of, all of the, the gay men and, and trans elders who died during the AIDS crisis um, and, and who we lost, you know, due to another public health emergency that was famously mismanaged. 
Um, so, so, you know, from a public health perspective too, you know, and, and thinking about, you know, environmental health factors, you know, who, who, you know, when, when we're working with older adults, um, it can be a little bit, a little bit sad, um, but I think important to think of, you know, who, who aren't we getting the chance to work with um, and why that's happening too. Those are just some of my general thoughts. Thank you so much for sharing more information about the clinical practice with your work with geriatric patients. You bring up some really wonderful points on historical context, institutionalization, learning to accept grief and loss. And I wanted to touch a little bit on, you brought up something about comorbidities and how um, patients with UTIs can actually have symptoms of psychosis. And I wanted to ask you, what are some of the most common diagnoses that you have among your patients or potentially missed diagnoses that you might see? Um, you know, a lot of times when I'm, when I'm seeing someone for the first time, um, it's typically for adjustment, right? You know, they, they just arrived in, in a nursing home. Um, we, we talk a lot in this line of work about the fact that even moving into a nursing home can be traumatic for people, right? Because they, you know, maybe they did have to spend down their entire, you know, life savings. Um, you know, certainly it, it, for most people, it's probably not their first choice um, to be, to be in, a, in a setting like this, you know, in a communal living environment. Um, and and maybe, maybe they fought tooth and nail against it. Um, and maybe they've, maybe they've left multiple nursing homes before um, and, and here they are yet again. Um, so, so typically when I'm seeing someone, you know, for the first time, my first questions are, you know, what's, what's been happening? You know, what, what are you currently experiencing, you know, in terms of symptoms with, with stress? Um, you know, what are, what are you engaging in to, to, to help yourself cope um, and, and get through your day? Um, how can staff uh, work with you better? You know, what can they improve on? What are they doing well? Um, and certainly there's, there's also people who, as I mentioned, you know, might, you know, we, we talk about their history or, you know, looking at their medical record, you know, they, they might have a history of depression or anxiety or bipolar or schizophrenia. Um, and, and so those are, those are, you know, really important things to talk about, but obviously, you know, I'm, I'm, I haven't yet, you know, diagnosed someone with schizophrenia for the first time in their life when, you know, they come just when I, you know, show up in their room and they're 80 years old, you know, typically given, given the nature of, of many mental health um, diagnoses, you know, those, those sorts of things would have, would have demonstrated themselves earlier, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, due to, due to history, maybe they haven't been, maybe they haven't seen a professional. Um, certainly I've, I've worked with a lot of people um, where the, the care team and the family have even said, you know, this person maybe has a developmental disability, but that wasn't a thing, you know, as they were growing up and they were never assessed. Um, and, and, you know, so, so the main point, you know, in any of those cases is, you know, well, how, how do, how do we still, access, you know, the, the care that they need to, to be successful in whatever environment they're in. Um, yeah. 
You know, one thing I just want to add to what Jay was saying is that, um, I mean, there have been studies, especially with older adults in hospitals, um, actually hallucinating. And part of that is due to uh, interrupted sleep. So when someone's coming in at one o'clock and then they're waking you up at three o'clock, that that interruption of especially older adults sleep has led to hallucinations. Mm -hmm. Um, And then people are in a way being kind of misdiagnosed because of that when all they need is really a lot of help getting their sleep back on track. Which is also important because oftentimes to diagnose uh, some sort of psychosis, the hallucinations or delusions can't be or they shouldn't be related to the sleep-wake cycle. Um, and, and some people, you know, will tell me, you know, very worried, you know, I'm going crazy. So, so that is a, a very common issue. And I think especially being, being in a setting like a, like a hospital or a nursing home where, where your sleep is constantly disrupted, those mm. sorts of things can be very All right. Thank you for that. It looks like we have some questions in the chat um, already showing up. How often are there on-site therapists available for LTC residents? And is there there or is therapy covered by insurance any differently when PTS sim, or receives therapy from on-site therapists? So one of the things as, as Sue was talking that I was reflecting on is how grateful I am that I work for, for a, a company where I am not responsible for my own billing. Um, and thankfully, um, you know, because um, I, I guess I haven't shared that much about about uh, the Associated Clinic of Psychology, um, but you know, there's there's clinic locations, there's a community team where they see people in their homes, um, and then the team that I'm on, you know, we go into into senior facilities, um, and so so they're they're very very you know diligent and and they have their processes for for you know billing insurance that that I'm not part of and and. I've even, you know, requested just so I can do some patient education, you know, well, how does that typically work? You know, what's a, what's a sample, you know, copay that I can tell people to expect? Um, and the response that I consistently get is every, every, you know, it depends on the diagnosis. It depends on the insurance. It depends on, you know, the amount of time it's, there's just so many factors that they're not even gonna, you know, not even gonna go there with me. Um, but I will say that that every time someone's mentioned an issue to me with with their insurance, they have a copay that they're not not sure of, anything like that. Um, the minute I talk to to, to the billing team um, and they're able to, to connect with the client, I've I've never heard another word about it. Um, so so thankfully they're they're able to to do do some creative problem solving. Um, uh, as in terms of frequency, you know, it, it really depends on on the the site um the building i'm currently in is is a fairly large one in the twin cities uh, so i'm here i'm here twice a week um you know it's it's fairly rare for me to see people every week um just because you know most people don't don't need that intensive of support um but i certainly try and see people about once a month um you know and that's and that's quite a few people Thank you. Uh, did I see a question from June over there? Go ahead. Thanks. So it's really not a question, but these days when good laughs are few and far between because of everything, you know, COVID, everything, I wanted to thank Jay for giving me my first laugh of the day. When he talked about the patient who said, uh, 
a memorable time was when they got indoor plumbing. I am 80. We did not have, I grew up on a farm, not a lot of money. We did not have indoor plumbing till I was 12. And let me tell you, when you have to go out in the middle of winter or use what we call a slop pot, it becomes memorable when you get indoor plumbing. So thank you for giving me my really good first laugh of the day. Thank you for sharing, June. There's another question in the chat. It looks like this might be for Sue. Um, what are one to two of the big topics NAMI is working on in these areas? And what does that look like? What does that look like and how can students get involved um, or help if interested? So a, a lot of the issues I talked about are on the federal level. Um, and there have been uh, bills introduced, you know, every time, uh, every new congressional session um, to add LMFTs and LPCCs to Medicare. And that's helpful, not just, you know, frankly, for older adults, but also for people with disabilities who are on Medicare as well. Um, so I would certainly encourage you to contact um, your, you know, member of Congress and our two senators and say, you know, this is really an issue and you should be doing this. Um, I would also push them to say, you know, when is mental health parity going to be applied to Medicare. Um, there is no better time than now to do that, especially knowing the impact of the pandemic. On the state level, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, to be honest, we're not focusing on the elderly waiver right now um, because the issues related to kids' mental health are just catastrophic. And so um, a lot of our efforts are focused on that right now. Um, you know, we've got you know, we've got higher rates of um, psychosis for 18 to 26 year olds right now. Um, we have the uh, suicide rate among uh, black male youth going up. I mean, there's just, there's just a lot with kids right now that we wanna make sure that, you know, we can help them grow up to be healthy adults. Not that we don't care about adults because there will be, you know, there are some other issues that we're working on there. Um, but at the state level, it's really just the elderly waiver and we're just kind of, you know, our bandwidth, it's bandwidth, to be honest. And so that will be another year that we'll go back to working on that one. Thank you. Are there any more questions from the audience? Um, I have a quick question. I think one of my uh, earphones might've gone up, but can, can you hear me okay? Okay. Yes. Um, it's just kind of a general question about um, like older adults being able to access and learn about resources if they don't have access to the internet, like I think about older adults in rural areas, and if they don't have people to like help them with either internet access or transportation to a library or something like that, or even like it's complicated enough trying to navigate Medicare and those things. But are there are, are there resources for 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 those without internet or who are not in kind of resource rich areas? I guess kind of a broad question, but just something I'm thinking about. I do think um, public health in rural uh, Minnesota plays a huge role. Um, and I think they really do try to do outreach to older adults, you know, checking in terms of, um, you know, do they have access to food, you know, and things like that. Um, but you're right, without the, without the internet, that makes it much harder. 
Um, if they have a primary care physician, um, you know, we certainly see primary care being more holistic uh, than just, you know, I'm going to check their diabetes. They tend to be more holistic uh, to make sure that um, people are accessing the care that they need. But it's, it's hard without the internet, absolutely hard. There are, you know, phone numbers that you can certainly call, you know, senior linkage line and, you know, things like that. Um, disability hub, but much harder. Yeah, it looks like there was actually a helpline um, added in the chat. Um, the 24-7 helpline is 800-272-3900 from the Alzheimer's Association, um, which can be a great resource for families that are caring with people, caring for people with dementia. Did we have more questions from the audience? Well, I am wondering, um, this is more so for, for you, Jay, that you mentioned as people age and they get institutionalized, there's often a loss of agency um, and autonomy. So I'm wondering how do you ensure that you're providing um, person-centered approaches or how are you um, applying this in, in your practice? That's a great question that I wish there was one answer to. Um, you know, I think, I think hopefully, you know, if, if anyone in this group is or becomes a mental health provider, that's, you know, front and center of, of your mind all the time. Um, because, you know, that's, that's really, you know, kind of the, the core of our, of our job. And, and certainly, um, I think a crux of a lot of people's, um, you know, especially if they're having symptoms like depression and anxiety, oftentimes, you know, that, that might be the source, right? Is that, is, you know, maybe someone's feeling anxious because they do, you know, physically need help throughout the day, but they can't do that on their own and they're sitting and waiting. Um, and if you needed to sit and wait for 30 minutes every time you had to use the bathroom, um, you would probably be irritable. You would probably be anxious. Uh, you would, probably not be having a great time. So for, for, you know, in most cases, it's about, you know, really trying to figure out, you know, what is this person's goal? And oftentimes it's, it's a combination then, you know, after identifying the goal of saying, okay, well, what, what can we do together, right? What are some strategies, you know, the client can independently use to, to manage their distress? So, you know, it's, sometimes it's, it's, it's refocusing and reframing of, you know, well, what, what can you do and, and how do we, how do we emphasize those areas or, or, you know, draw upon those, those strengths, um, you know, in, in these, these other areas where, where you are feeling, you know, more helpless or even just strategies like, you know, how do you spend your time? So you're not literally just sitting and waiting because sitting and waiting is one of the worst feelings. Um, on top of you know waiting for your pain medication or something like that, and then and then oftentimes it's working with staff to say you know well what you know ev everyone in a nursing home has a care plan that says you know this is this is what this person prefers you know here's how often we're gonna you know pr provide this type of treatment you know all those sor sorts of things so you know if someone if someone you know wants to sleep in until ten o'clock every day and that's how they've lived their entire life. I then advocate for, you know, stop getting them up at six, you know, just cause it's, you know, just cause it's convenient for, for, you know, you to do that rather than waiting, um, doesn't mean that you should, right. Um, or sometimes it's, you know, 
figuring out what what they are doing well or what they are doing right um, and really just just trying to encourage more of that um, you know I think certainly certainly now when when you know staffing is such a, an issue in 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 environments like this um, asking people to do more uh, is sometimes an impossible ask um, but to ask people to continue doing something is not only doable but it's also some some good you know positive reinforcement well thank you for all that you do both you and susan are sharing incredible resources and work it's very valuable with that i will pass it over to kayla to wrap up the the event for today i just want to say thank you both again this was fantastic and a cool um balance sort of that bigger picture things that are going on in this area and then also the clinical aspects so thank you both This podcast is brought to you by ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. We are a collaborative networking group for students studying aging across the university. Stay tuned for the next episodes of Voices of Aging, where you learn more about aging through experts.